This is Jason Holleran. I proudly served for 33 years, culminating as the Deputy Commandant at West Point. Put this on your calendar. World War II weekend inside Old Bethpage Village Restoration on Long Island. Scores of operational vintage armor in formation May 18th and 19th. Nassau County Executive Bruce Blakeman invites you to join him in saluting America's greatest generation and all those who have worn the uniform in defense of our freedoms. That's May 18th and 19th, presented by the Museum of American Armor. Uh, it is my great pleasure to welcome a gentleman who who knows so much about Russia and tried to warn the American people and American policymakers about Russia. And one wonders, had we heeded those warnings in his book, the Russia trap two years ago, if we'd be in a better position than we are today. Uh, George Beebe is vice president and director of studies at the Center for the National Interest. In addition to being the author of the book, uh, The Russia Trap, he has spent more than two decades in government service as a diplomat, as an intelligence analyst, a policy advisor. He was the uh, director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Unit, and he was also a special advisor to Vice President Cheney for Russia and, uh, and Eurasia issues. George, uh, it is always a great treat to talk with you. Thanks for getting up early. Thanks, Frank. All right. Um, let me begin with, uh, I mean, obviously, we're seeing the images on our television, civilians being forced to leave their homes, uh, people on both sides being killed. It's just a, an unspeakable tragedy. Uh, you wrote a column in the National Interest a couple of weeks ago, which I thought was really interesting. Through the prism of hindsight, do you think all of this was preventable? And what would we have had to do in order to prevent it? Well, I, I do think it was preventable, uh, and it's an enormous tragedy that we're in the situation that we are, uh, both for the Ukrainian people and, and for the world. But um, I think what had to be done was to find some kind of compromise, um, and uh, that compromise would have had to have involved uh, agreement that Ukraine will be uh, neither Russia's nor the West's, that, that it would be officially neutral. And it would extract Ukraine from this geopolitical tug of war that has been going on for quite some time between uh, NATO and Russia. Um, it's something that uh, I think uh, if this war is going to end without uh, you know, either Russia or Ukraine completely capitulating, um, it will have to involve Ukrainian neutrality. Uh, the Ukrainians are now saying that they're prepared to contemplate that should they be given adequate security guarantees. And I think that's something that we should have been discussing prior to this invasion, and it might well have headed this off. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you grade the Biden administration's job handling this crisis thus far? Well, I think in one sense, they've done a good job in that they have maintained the unity of the NATO alliance through all of this, which is no small feat. Um, they have also been very wise in recognizing that the big threat we face here is being sucked into a direct war with Russia, which would be very much prone to escalation, uh, even to the nuclear level. Uh, President Biden has been consistent in saying that he does not want to take steps that threaten that kind of escalation into what he calls World War III. And I think he's quite wise to do that. 
that said, I think uh, he has also been very resistant to uh, negotiating with the Russians on this question of NATO enlargement into Ukraine. Um, that has been Russia's key demand uh, for actually decades, not just weeks or months on this. And it's also been something that the Biden administration has refused to discuss. So um, he's done well in some areas, but I think poorly in others. So yesterday I had read that uh, Zelensky was basically talking openly about swearing off NATO membership if it meant bringing an end to this conflict. Is that the way that you think we get out of this? Well, that has to be part of it. Um, it's not by itself adequate to settling this war now. Uh, it might have worked prior to the invasion, but once blood starts being spilled, emotions run quite high. Um, both sides have strong incentives to come away from this conflict with some sense of victory. Um, so I think if, uh, if this is going to be settled, yes, Ukrainian neutrality has to be a part of it. Uh, but there also have to be some other things that are going to be very hard for the sides to agree on. Uh, Ukraine needs security guarantees that it's not going to be subject to this kind of an invasion again. And what those look like are going to be difficult to negotiate because the Ukrainians aren't simply going to take Russia's word for it that they won't do this again. They're going to need some sort of involvement on the part of the West, and the Russians are going to be very sensitive to what that looks like. Um, the uh, the Russians are going to need the United States and Europe to ease these economic sanctions that we have imposed. Maybe not lift them altogether, but significantly reduce them. And I think there's going to be a lot of political pressure in the West not to do that. Um, and the West, I think, to agree to something here is also going to need the Russians to agree to reparations of some kind for the damage that they have inflicted on Ukraine. That's going to be a difficult thing for the Russians to agree to. And then finally, we've got the status of eastern Ukraine, uh, the Crimea, which the Russians annexed in 2014, but neither the West nor Ukraine has recognized as, as legitimately part of Russia, and the Donbass region. Uh, much of which the Russians now occupy, but significant portions of which are still in Ukrainian hands. And the question of what happens to Donbass, uh, does Ukraine recognize it as no longer part of Ukrainian territory? And if so, where is that new boundary between the, the remnants of the Ukrainian state and the Donbass drawn? So these are all things that are going to have to be addressed. We saw over the weekend uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, sort of publicly call out Israel and the prime minister of Israel, Naftali Bennett. He, um, re you know, uh, reproached Israel for not giving Ukraine Iron Dome technology. He took issue with Bennett trying to be a mediator uh, between Ukraine and Russia without taking Ukraine's side in the mediation. And he even invoked the Holocaust. Uh, did you think that those remarks uh, from Zelensky on Sunday were inappropriate? Well, Zelensky um, obviously is in a very difficult position. Uh, he is fighting for Ukraine's national survival, quite literally. Um, and what he is trying to do is uh, to use all of his 
uh, persuasive powers to try to bring other countries to Ukraine's defense. Uh, he's doing that with the United States. He's doing it with Europe. Uh, he's doing it with Israel as well. Uh, one of the things that Ukraine needs is effective air defense uh, against superior Russian air force. Uh, and the Iron Dome system, of course, is one that looks quite attractive and, and could, in principle, uh, help Ukraine. But Israel um, can't simply deliver that uh, by itself. Uh, it's one that was developed in conjunction with the United States. It would also require some technical help, advisors, people that can train and assist uh, the Ukrainians in how to use it. Um, and so Zelensky is, is trying to, in one sense, shame Israel into trying to uh, side with Ukraine on all of this. Israel has its own national interests that, that are at stake here. It doesn't want to get in the middle of all of this. It, it has uh, it has had for many years now very constructive relations with Russia. Uh, it doesn't want to have Russia be its enemy for a variety of reasons. So um, Israel thinks its interests are best served by ending this war, by finding a way to reach a negotiated settlement. Well, isn't everybody's uh, best interest by ending this war through a negotiated settlement? Israel, Russia, Ukraine, the United States, everybody? Well, I believe that's true, yes. Uh, but not everyone agrees with that. Uh, there are some people that believe that the way out of this situation is not through a compromise settlement where everyone saves face to some degree. There are those that believe that the only way out of this is Russia's capitulation and defeat. Um, and that uh, they envision either happening on the battlefield or uh, over the longer term, if there's a stalemate on the battlefield, that Russia will eventually wear down that uh, its economy will stagnate and fail, that political resistance inside Russia uh, will rise as more and more people grow unhappy over what has happened on the battlefield and um, are unhappy with the economic conditions that they face as a result of sanctions. So there, there is a school of thought that thinks that we need to be patient here uh, to continue to provide Ukraine with sufficient forces to defend itself, to, to stave off a Russian victory, and that over time Russia will start to falter, much like the Soviet Union did uh, after its debacle in Afghanistan. I think this is a mistaken view, but there are certainly a lot of people out there that believe in it. What about the uh, Polish um, initiative to give the Ukrainian Air Force MiGs that would require American assistance in transporting these uh, these uh, fighter jets from Poland to Ukraine. In your view, is Biden doing the right thing by resisting those calls? Yes, I think he is. Uh, there is a, a high potential that uh, Russia and the United States could wind up in some sort of direct military clash. This could happen in a lot of different ways, but of course, one of them would be if the United States uh, gets more directly involved in providing uh, military assistance to Ukraine. Uh, the Russians have said that uh, Western military supplies and supply lines to Ukraine are legitimate military targets, and they've 
already been striking uh, depots inside Ukraine, in the western parts of Ukraine, that are the recipients of this Western military aid. Uh, what happens, for example, if one of those supply lines is struck and uh, actual NATO military personnel are killed in that? Uh, that could have a catalytic effect in the West on um, how the West will respond to Russia. A lot of pressure already has been going on politically to uh, impose no-fly zones, for example, uh, over Ukraine. You can't do that sort of thing without directly tangling with the Russian Air Force, without striking Russian air defense units. So um, th- these calls you're now, for a, you're now in a direct war. Th- these calls for a no-fly zone then w- would be short-sighted and dangerous for the same reasons. I think that's exactly right. Um, a no-fly zone is not a gentleman's agreement not to fly in certain airspace. A no-fly zone is a military act. It's an act of force that actually shoots down Russian air force that fly over uh, the no-fly zone area. It, it actively uh, suppresses Russian uh surface-to-air missile units inside Russia and in, and in Belarus. Um, that, that is an act of war, and in all likelihood, the Russians would have to respond militarily to that. You're now in a scenario where um, NATO forces uh, or, or U.S. forces are at war with the Russians. That's a very perilous situation. Mm-hmm. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with George Beebe. Uh, If you want a a great understanding of some of the issues we're dealing with now, uh, please check out his book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. This was precisely one of the catastrophes that uh, George mentions and warns about in his book, but there are several others. Was it a mistake, do you think, for uh, President Biden to repeatedly say publicly that a Russian invasion of Ukraine was imminent, or did that warning from the administration play no role at all in terms of what happened afterwards? Well, um, I don't think that that actually provoked the invasion, no. Um, The Biden administration has released intelligence reports that would normally stay classified. Uh, And I think the hope was that by releasing these reports, it would uh, complicate Russian military plans and in one sense shame the Russians into not following through. Uh, It's debatable whether this complicated Russia's military planning or not, but obviously Russia has not been shamed into holding back. Um, And, you know, it remains to be seen. Uh, It's a a matter for historians at some distant point in the future to look back on this and, and see what actually happened and to what degree this release of intelligence was a factor affecting uh, Russian decision-making. Right now, I think it's fair to say that all of the deterrent measures that the United States has undertaken to this point have failed to prevent this invasion. In terms of the, the things that Putin says he wants in order to stop this war, he's mentioned acknowledging Russian control of Crimea, acknowledging the independence of the two Donbass republics, 
demilitarization and uh, not a, a pledge not to join any international organizations, presumably groups like the, the European Union and NATO. Now, if we get to that through negotiation, and let's say it's a settlement that's uh, mediated by Biden or Bennett or whomever, and it results in, you know, no more war, and that's where we end up, is it dangerous to give Putin what he wants? Would that embolden him, if he gets what he wants, to go do this to some other country? Well, you know, that's exactly the argument that a lot of people make in all of this, that this is akin to Hitler in World War II. And that the one thing you don't do to, to somebody with, with those sorts of grandiose uh, global ambitions is to try to appease him because that only whets his appetite for further conquest. And you hear this today uh, with people that say, you know, if we give in on Ukraine, Next will be Poland or the Baltic states and and maybe even the United States itself. You know, and a few years ago, you actually heard this from from senior American uh, government officials where they said, you know, we're fighting Russia in Ukraine You know, back in you know, 2019 um, so that we don't have to fight Russia here in the United States. Uh, and, and I think this is actually a gross exaggeration. Um, I don't believe that Putin has plans to invade other parts of Europe. And and the resistance that the Russian military has been facing inside Ukraine and the difficulties that it has had in advancing very quickly there, I think show the limits of what Russia is really capable of. Uh, Russian tanks are not going to be rolling into Belgium if, if uh, we find some sort of settlement uh, in Ukraine. In terms of uh, we heard a lot over the weekend about hypersonic missiles, have the Russians, in fact, used hyper hypersonic missiles? What are hypersonic missiles and how much of a game changer is that? Well, um, hypersonic missiles are missiles that travel at, at very, very high velocity and are very difficult for air defense systems to shoot down. Um and they don't travel with ballistic trajectories, with, with high arcs you know, up into the atmosphere and, and then back down. So they, they, they travel closer to the ground at high speeds with maneuverability. Um, what's significant, I think, in the Russian use of this is that they were able to strike uh, protected underground facilities in western Ukraine that were built during the Soviet period uh, to be resistant to nuclear attack. Uh, Back in the old days, the only way you could destroy these sorts of deep underground facilities was with nuclear warheads. Uh, But what the Russians have done in this case is to use a conventional uh, warhead with this hypersonic uh, delivery vehicle to destroy this deep underground facility in western Ukraine. Uh, And it was a recipient of Western military aid. And and the thought on the part of the Ukrainians, I think, was that uh, these Western military supplies would be safe. They would be secure in this deep underground facility. And the Russians have, have shown, no, we can strike this. We can do it without nuclear weapons. 
um, we have an arsenal here that is quite significant. So part of this was to show their ability to strike a specific military objective. Part of it was to send a signal to Ukraine in the West that uh, the Russians have a technical capability here that's quite formidable and that the Ukrainian government ought to take this into account in thinking about a settlement. Uh, on that note, George, uh, we're uh, actually going to have to end it there. I very much appreciate the time this morning. I always learn so much from you, and I'm, I'm grateful that you, uh, when you're so in demand as you are these days, you'll get up early and chat with us. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. It's George Beebe, author of the book The Russia Trap. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.